But we're gonna talk about a tough topic that makes some people feel uncomfortable. And then at the end of it, we're gonna have an opportunity to respond. And all I'm asking is this, will, will you stay in the conversation with me and allow the word of God to speak to your heart and open yourself to moving from this to this? So one of the worst disagreements Laurel and I ever had was over a basketball hoop. Laurel wanted to buy a basketball hoop for our son Braden one Christmas and when we got to the store it was more expensive than I thought it was going to be so I started arguing and the mature part of my argument went like this. I didn't have a basketball hoop when I was growing up and I turned out just fine. (laughs) Here's what I discovered about myself that day. I'm cheap. Okay, I prefer the word frugal, but the truth is I was cheap. I don't like to spend my money, and I was the least like my heavenly father in that moment because I put my wallet in front of my child's blessing. And I don't think I'm the only one who struggles with this. It's not natural for any of us to be generous. In fact, there are some of us that that like to give, but the truth is this, when there's a crisis, when the cost of living begins to go up, we tend to grab what's ours and hold on for dear life because we think there's security and stability in money, so we hold on to it and we stress over it. USA Today polled a group of people about the source of their stress. The number one answer in this country was money or the lack of it. It's our number one stressor because we fight over it, we fight for it, we try to keep it under control and debt just keeps creeping in underneath of the plan. We try to budget, but the tyranny of the urgent and the need for more just keeps moving us deeper and deeper and we find ourselves drowning in red ink. And here's what's heartbreaking for me. The followers of Jesus are not immune to the stress and are not any better at handling this topic than people who don't know Jesus. Don't believe me? A thousand Jesus followers were polled by a polling group and their answers to two questions were absolutely shocking to me. Only 8% of them said they followed a biblical plan for their finances and only 7% of them said they believed Jesus would describe them as generous. That just rocked me to the core. And those are the people who know the verse from Philippians 4.19. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches which are in Christ Jesus. We know the verse. We have the promise. It should open our hand, but instead we're like everybody else and our hands are closed. Last week, I walked you through an Old Testament story of someone who moved from this to this. And we're going to do exactly the same thing again. Here's a story from 2 Kings chapter 4. Just follow along with me and picture it. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all of your neighbors for empty jars. Don't just ask for a few. Then go inside, shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each one is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a single jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil, pay off your debts, and then you and your sons can live on what's left. Last week, we saw a whole bunch of parallels between Old Testament story and our reality, and today I want to point out a couple more, a couple more uh, parallels, if you want to call them that. The first one is this, crisis happens. Has anybody noticed that? 
Crisis happens. You lose a loved one, you want the world to stop, but it doesn't. You lose a job, a business, a house, the apartment, the lease, the tuition, your health. You just want everything to freeze for a moment so you can take a breath, but the world just keeps on moving. You want it to stop, and you think somehow God should make it stop because you're just like the man in the story, the husband who dies. You say, God, I should get a break because I love the Lord, and you learn something. You can love the Lord, but the world keeps on going. You want God to make the crisis go away, but it doesn't. And then you learn another hard lesson. Not only does crisis happen, but creditors don't care. They don't care. The woman lost her husband and the creditors have no concern for her or her crisis. I mean, her world falls apart and the creditors still want their debt paid. They don't care. And the story says they're coming for her and her boys. She wants the world to stop. I just want to grieve my husband, but the world doesn't skip a beat. I hate to be the one to tell you, but if your world falls apart Monday and Tuesday of this week, your car payment is still due. She runs to the man of God, and he asks a question. I love the question. How can I help? Do you know what this world needs? It needs more people who respond in the face of crisis with those four words. How can I help? That's always a good question. Then he probes a little deeper and another question is posed. He asks her, what do you have? What do you have? You know, I, I wanna stop here for just a second. When, when someone asks me what I have, there's a natural response that comes up inside of me and it's amazing to me. It always focuses on lack, not supply. When somebody, you know, you know I, I've, I've asked a lot of people, you know, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? You know, what, what do you have these days when they're facing crisis? You know what I, you know what I rarely hear, if ever? I rarely hear somebody go, I have, I have everything. Like, you should have seen this morning. I woke, without, I woke up with a sunrise and breath in my lungs and Jesus. I mean, my life is just perfect. I don't hear that. I'll say, you know, what, what do you have? What are you working with? And the answer is always nothing. So the answer to the question for her is the way I think we all answer this question. When someone says, what do you have? It's like nothing, nothing. And I think we all kind of see it that way. And, and let me prove it to you. So if you've ever stood in a closet full of clothes and said, I have nothing to wear, then you've seen it this way, okay? If you've ever stood in a pantry or in front of a refrigerator with anything in it at all and said, there is no food in this house, you've seen it this way. If you've ever stood beside your car while somebody's newer car drives by and what happens in your head is, why does God love that person more than me? Then you've seen it this way. We all see our lack. It's natural. God wants us to see his supply. And she begins to see something. There's a small glimmer of a realization because she says, I got nothing except, except a small jar of olive oil. So what do you have? Nothing except this little tiny jar of olive oil. And as she answers that question, nothing except, we see her hand slowly start to open. And that's not easy to do. It's natural to grab a hold of what little we have because we think if we release it, we're actually gonna be doomed. Can, can I encourage you with something today? God doesn't need nothing except, God can actually do something with nothing. 
You read the book of Genesis, the Bible says that God created everything ex nihilo, out of nothing. If you've got nothing except, and it doesn't matter what's on the other end of except, you are in prime territory for God to do a miracle. See, God can take your little piece of nothing except and do something amazing with it, but only if you have enough trust to release it to him. Now, this is where it gets good because Elisha makes an illogical trust request. Because I'm going to need you to pour oil. Now, if you're a logical thinking person and all you have left is a little tiny jar of olive oil, and that's actually like currency back in this culture, wouldn't you be thinking, you want me to pour oil? Shouldn't I be keeping oil? Here's the underlying question. Do you trust God? And then he says this, go get some jars. What do I need jars plural for. I've got a little jar singular. What do I need jars for? Do you trust God? Get the jars. Follow the instructions. Send your boys out. I know it's going to be humbling and people in your neighborhood are going to think you're crazy. What do you need jars for? Um, we're going to fill them? With what? I don't know. <laughs> but the preacher man said, get jars. So here I am. You got any to spare? She makes a decision to trust. And this is powerful. It's a simple decision. I'm going to trust God. She obeys. She gets the jars. And the Bible says, I love these words, she kept pouring and pouring and pouring. One jar fills. Another jar fills. Another jar fills. Another jar fills. Until, and she keeps pouring until God gave her, gave her everything she needed to be content and a really cool miracle story on top of it. How does that happen? How do we duplicate that? You know what I see? This is the shift that happens. She stops trusting the resource and begins to trust the source. Let me say that again. She stops trusting the resource and starts trusting the source. So let's ask a personal question. How can I practically shift from trusting the resource to the source? Well, I broke it down this way. If you've been a Christ the King for a long time, you've heard this before, okay? I created the acrostic trust. It's not mine. It's not original. I will give credit to like 50 pastors across the country because I pulled the best things that they have, stuck it all together, and this is kind of what popped out, okay? So it's the acrostic trust. I wish you could follow along on the screens. You can't, so you're just going to have to write it down, okay? Or try to remember it as best you can. So the T in trust stands for track your finances. Proverbs 27 says this, Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. For riches do not endure forever, and a crown is not secure for all generations. The Bible just says right out, you need to know the condition of your finances. Now, unless you're a goat farmer, this particular verse needs a little interpretation, okay? But the principle is timeless. It's just godly to know where you're at financially. You're supposed to track it every single penny. Why? Because it's not yours. You're a steward of it. It all belongs to God, and he wants us to know where it is. So in our family, Laurel does the finances, okay? Every Saturday, she sits down at the computer which is not easy anymore because of her eye condition. And she does the books and she always balances to the penny every single time. You know why Laurel does the finances? Because I used to do the finances. 
I used to do the finances and I had my own method. I called it, if you're within 400 bucks, call it good. And it did not serve my family well at all. I thought I was being just a little undisciplined. I read my Bible and found out it was ungodly. It is common sense to know what you own, what you owe, what you earn, and where it goes. Thus saith the Bible. That's the T. Track your finances. Here's the R. Return 10% to its rightful owner. This is where people get uncomfortable. Stick with me. Malachi chapter 3. God says, bring the whole tithe, which simply means tenth. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then God says this. The only time in scripture he ever says these words. Test me in this. Give it your best shot and see whether or not it doesn't work. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you will not have room enough for it. Don't make the mistake of thinking that blessing equals stuff. Have you noticed that the best things in your life are not connected to things? So this 10th thing, this is God's principle of tithing. I'm just gonna say it. God wants the first, first 10% of what you earn given back to him in an act of trust. You're like, but Grant, I made the money. With what strength? With whose thoughts? And if your answer to all of those things is it was all me, then you need to remember something. The only reason you're breathing is because God said you could. Amen. So for every, t- oh, let's go with a visual. Some of you have seen this before. God's math is so unbelievably complicated, but I'll do my best to try and break it down the right way, okay? Here's God's financial plan for his children. Let me just make a little aside. If you're here just investigating Jesus or checking out church, I want you to know something. This is actually not, um, we don't want anything from you. In fact, I'd love to blow up that misconception that all the church wants is their money. Just so we're completely clear, the last time we did a financial series was in 2019. We don't talk about this very often. We should probably talk about it more. The reason we don't talk about it a lot actually is because of your generosity, and I really, really appreciate that. But if you're here just checking this out, over the next couple of minutes, we just want to invite you to watch the Jesus followers squirm because we have to figure out whether we're being obedient or not. Okay? Here's God's plan. Super complicated math. Stick with me. For every 10 of these, God allows you to earn. You give one of them back to him in an act of trust. Too complicated? Let's do it again. Okay, so, um, no, this stuff is so hard, right? For every 10 of these that God helps you earn, you give one of them back to him in an act of trust. Why 10%? I have no idea. I don't know. But I do know this. I believe it is my conviction. Everything I have belongs to him in the first place. We can set the number wherever he wants to. Because I've learned this to be true. God owns it all. He loans it to us for 80 or 90 years. After you're gone, he's going to get it all back. But the loan stipulation in the meantime is that he gets the first 10% back. And I want to remind you something about that. God's 10 is still bigger than your 90 So why would God do this? Does he need the interest? No. Is he struggling financially? No. Is he just playing a game with us? No. Then why? He wants us to trust him. Tithing's an act of worship. It's an act of gratitude. It's an act of priority. And most of all, it's an act of 
trust. That's why God said, test me. Test me in this and see if I don't just pour out so much blessing on you. Malachi gives us the what? 1 Corinthians 16 gives us the when. It says, on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a son of money. So it's a regular discipline in keeping with this income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections have to be made. I've said this before. I never used to like talking about this topic. Here was the reason. It's because it was connected to what Derek said. I used to have a lot of shame around this area. Because for the first nine years of my career as a pastor, I did not do this. And I could never figure out why we couldn't make ends meet. I kept saying, we can't afford to. What I figured out was we could not afford not to. And I justified it. These were my loopholes. God, you get all of my time and you get all of whatever talent I have and I'm a broke youth pastor. What do you need my money for? And he went, ah, whose money? You mean your idol. That's why God cares so much about this. I have never seen anything in my life that can become an idol faster than this. I want to give you some perspective. Most of us in this room at some level are carrying a piece of leather with paper and plastic inside of it. And we will choose it over anything. Our children, our marriages, and our futures. I wanted God to bless my family, but I was unwilling to put him first in this crucial area. And then God changed my heart. Can I tell you something? If you want God to bless any area of your life, you have to put him first, and you have to be obedient to what he says. If you want God to bless a relationship you're in, you've got to prioritize him. If you want God to bless your business, he has to be the cornerstone and the foundation because this is true. God will not accept your leftovers. Some of you are biblical purists and you're already rising up in anger saying, tithing is an Old Testament principle and I am under New Testament grace. Do you want to talk about New Testament giving? Let's do that. Let's do that. You want to go New Testament? Absolutely. Can I tell you this? God's grace cost him everything through Jesus. The New Testament model is everything. Forget 10%. It's 100%. You want to go New Testament? God bless your heart. Let's go. <laughs> Proverbs 3 says this. Honor the Lord with your wealth the first fruits of all your crops then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine and some of you are like this does not apply honor the Lord with your wealth can I tell you something if you are here today you you had a roof over your head and you've eaten more than one meal you are in the 94th percentile of the richest people on the face of the planet So we got two, okay? So we got T, track your finances, R, return 10% to its rightful owner. You, you use good planning to gain victory. Financial planning, it starts with having a good budget. That's not glamorous, but it's true. Do you know that about 78% of people in America don't have a budget, which means you have no idea where your money's going. If you don't have a plan for spending, you're headed for financial disaster. So years ago, Laurel and I got to build a house. And at one point, a group of plumbers came in and they plumbed the house so that we would have water where we wanted to have water, okay? We wanted water in showers. We wanted water in sinks. We wanted water 
in other places. I'll leave that to your imagination. I mean, we wanted water in the right places, right? If someone moved into your neighborhood, built a new house, and they took the water main from the city and just stuck it in the window of the basement and said, turn it on. We got water. (laughs) You'd go, you're nuts. You know what's crazy? People do that with their finances all the time. They connect their wish list to their paycheck and they scream, let her rip, and they wonder why they end up drowning in red ink. Proverbs 21, verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. This verse is talking about one of the greatest myths in our society, and the myth is this. If I just make a little more, I'll be financially free, and then I'll be happy. Nope. In fact, if you make a little more without planning what you're gonna do with it, you're just gonna have a bigger hole to crawl out of. You know why? Because yearnings always exceed earnings. Let me say it again. Yearnings always exceed earnings. We need to realize we live in a culture that is programmed to try and get us to spend more than we planned. Do you know how I know that to be true? because I have never seen a commercial that was trying to sell me a product. I have never seen anyone on television ever go, this is a beautiful product. So here's what we'd like you to do. Why don't you go back home and think about it? Just take a few minutes and review your finances. Check and see whether or not you have enough cash in hand to actually buy this particular product. And if you don't, please just say no, because we care so much about your financial situation. Anybody ever seen a commercial like that? Never. No, you don't want to know what I see? I see people, it's just like, you didn't know it existed five minutes ago, but now you have to have this. You have to have this. Your life will never be the, your life will never be the same. The message is you need it now. Your neighbors are going to say, wow, how did you ever live without it? Buy now. Swipe the card. Let's go. I love Proverbs 21, 20. <laughs> Stupid people spend their money as fast as they get it. That's good Bible. Stupid people spend their money as fast as they get it. Some of us should have that tattooed right here on the sliding hand. Some of us don't even slide anymore. It's too slow. It's just like, I'm going to tap. If you don't know how to budget, we have a financial class. Don't let shame keep you out of this. The Bible says we're supposed to do that work. Here's the next S in trust. It's saved for the future. Savings actually biblical. Proverbs 13, 11. Dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. Every year that I preach these kinds of things, even though it's been since 2019, since we really talked about it, I go and do a little piece of research. I go and do a little piece of research and I found out again, it was in the top three again this year. Top three most lucrative small businesses in the United States of America storage units storage units I'm not coming down on storage units if you were smart enough to build some on the front end God bless your heart but isn't it interesting we can't fit what we already have in the places we already have so we need to purchase overflow to contain things that we don't have enough room for and then are mad because we don't have access to them when we actually need it The Bible says save, not stockpile. And I hate to break it to you, but when you die and you leave that pile of stuff, the only thing you're doing 
is creating a greater opportunity for your kids to fight over something. I read a report again last week. It said most Americans will go into retirement dead broke because they simply see no need to save. God sees a need. Proverbs 21.20, the beginning of the verse, says the wise store up choice food and oil, but fools gulp theirs down. And then it goes on to say stupid people spend their money as fast as they get it. T-R-U-S, last T. Taste and savor contentment. You know, that's a part of God's plan too. Whenever, whatever you have, you're supposed to enjoy it. Nothing wrong with enjoying this blessing. And when we enjoy the blessing, we have an opportunity to hear what God has to say because he still has cautions for us. Hebrews 13, verse five. Keep your lives free, not from money. We need currency in order to be able to live. Nothing wrong with that. No, Hebrews 13 says, keep your lives free from the, from the love of money. Love of money is when you turn this into an idol and you spend your entire existence chasing it. And I can tell you from experience, this will leave you empty. Jesus will fill your heart. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Can we come full circle around back to this beautiful lady in the Old Testament? This is what I love about the lady in the story. She moves her hand from this to this and in doing that, she gets to taste and see how good God is. She goes against modern logic. No, I don't want, I don't want to pour out what little I have in the olive oil jar. That just doesn't make any sense. And then God says, test me. Come on, just start pouring. She goes against modern logic. She steps into the realm of faith and God is faithful and he keeps his promise and supplies all that she needs exceedingly abundantly above all she could have asked or even imagined so what's that mean for us it means this god keeps his promise to those who choose to trust him and faithfully keep pouring so christ the king let me ask you some questions once again i'm talking to the family of Jesus today. And if you're just trying to figure out this whole thing, I want you to know I'm not trying to get anything from you. To those who claim to be followers of Jesus, are you pouring out your life for Jesus? Is your goal to have every single drop poured out? To the parents in the room, are you leaving a legacy of faith for your kids? So they see the joy of generosity or are you creating loopholes and excuses that will teach them to do exactly what you're doing? Here's the tough one. Are you being obedient to God's plan or not? It all starts when we release what the world tells us to hold on to so that we can hold on here to eternity. I got a great email story this past week from a family 
I love when families share the things that they're going on. I got permission to share it. So we've got a family of three that comes to church every single weekend. They've got a 14-year-old son who's not super crazy about coming to church, but he comes. And, and after they leave every week, they get in their car, they head towards Dairy Queen. And because the parents want their son to be engaged in what's actually being taught, they'll ask him this question. So what did you get out of church today? Well, last week, he sat alongside of them. They walked outside, got in their car, headed towards Dairy Queen. He slid into the back seat, came right up behind their shoulders and said, hey, mom and dad, what did you get out of church today? <laughs> and the dad said, we had to apologize to our son for choosing excuses and loopholes over obedience. They also said, and now we're going to do it different. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. And that means if he says to do it, I'm going to trust him. Let's pray together. God, I want to thank you today for Isaiah 119. It says, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat of the good of the land. God, help us to be both willing and obedient. Lord, we will trust you. Make us a generous people. We pray these things in Jesus' name.